Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Now, Kobus is having a few technical difficulties getting on the line with us, so we're going to start our show without Kobus in this first segment and go to him in our second segment. As always, we have three topics that we explore on the show, and we're going to do something rather special this week, and I'm very, very excited, is we're going to have actually uh, both a Chinese Chinese and an African perspective on our show, and kind of a quasi-African perspective, if, if you will, talking about volunteering in Africa. And this has really become something of an important issue, uh, in part because uh, China is sending more and more volunteers to the continent, uh, nowhere near on the scale of what Europe and the United States does, but it is definitely a growing trend. So we're going to have one conversation with Felicity Lee, who is a, a university student at Fudan University in Shanghai, who went there. And then we're also going to get a counter perspective from an American point of view uh, from Alexander Lau, who Alex joined us on our Facebook page and has been very, very active. And so we'll get his perspective on his Peace Corps experience. And also we're going to talk then about our second issue, which is a kind of a general overview of Namibia relations where Alex served and China's growing presence there. And then we're going to talk, I'm going to follow on that about some uh, very interesting turn of events with China's Exim Bank and Namibia. So, uh, Felicity, welcome from Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. <laughs> and then we've also got Alex on the line from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, it's very early in the morning, so I do appreciate you uh, joining us there as well. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, great. So let's uh, let's start with first. I want to get from both of you uh, your overall impressions of what it was to to volunteer in Africa. Uh, Felicity, let's start with you because again, it's a little bit unusual to hear of Chinese volunteers. Uh, China f- has not really been known for sending non-governmental organization volunteers. Typically, when China sends people to Africa, it's in the form of state-owned enterprises or advisors of some way. But young students going to volunteer is something of a of a new trend. What inspired you to go to Ghana and to volunteer? Okay, so for me, it's because I really love Africa. I mean, before I know that there was a chance for me to go volunteering there, it has always been my dream to work there when I graduate. And uh, the reason why I fell in love with Africa is mostly because of its nature view, actually, because I think it's beautiful. It has big grassland or something. So when I know that there's a chance for me to volunteer there, it's um, to join the ISAC program. I just apply for it, and um, they said I can go. Then I go. So it's quite easy. And so it was pretty easy. You didn't have to have any qualifications. You you went through ISEC, and ISEC... Uh, a lot of students in in the United States and in Europe may be familiar with it operates in over a hundred countries all over the world um, mm-hmm. so so that's that by itself wasn 't too exceptional. Um, you went on a summer vacation, so it really wasn 't something that you did for a full time uh, and i 'm wondering how many other Chinese uh, you, you know are interested in this kind of thing at your school at least, and is this something that when you told your parents and you told your friends that you were going to go to Ghana? Uh, did they support you, or did they think this was something absolutely, you know, crazy? Okay, so for, for the first question about how many people are interested in this, um, I'd like to say that um, each year we send, like, two groups of students all there to do volunteering uh, abroad. But most people, they go to Asian countries like India, um, uh, some uh, countries like that. A few students would like to go to Africa because it's, 
and it's a little too far, and uh, the plane tickets are expensive. But like every year, we will be like around 10 students, and it's becoming more and more. So about the second question about how my parents think about it. Well, the first, at first, they are, they are really a little worried. They are thinking, I mean, you're a little girl, you go there alone. So they are not really, they don't want me to do this, but then I persuaded them because I really love this. And it's my, it's like a life dream. So they said, okay, then go. Okay. Well, before we get into the actual experience of what you did there, I want to get a a little perspective from Alex as well on your time in the Peace Corps. Now, you went to uh, Namibia where you taught math and science. Uh, Unlike uh, Felicity, um, you were joining an organization that had, you know, decades of experience. It's got tens of thousands of alumni who've gone through the Peace Corps program. It's really well established. It's quite prestigious. Uh, What was the motivation for you to, to volunteer? I guess it was a selfish one. I really wanted to see the world, um, Eric. Um, but at the same time, I thought to myself, hey, it would be really great to go overseas, help people out, uh, convey some of the, um, you know, the, the methods that I learned in school. I had a degree in geologic science, so um, you know, I had a choice in terms of what country um, I was able to go to. The option was Fiji, which was an island, obviously, and I had some hesitancy in terms of that. Um, Oh, Namibia. In Namibia, you know, there's plenty of, um, um, you know, things to do, things to see. I did some research on that. So that was my motivation. Um, in general, um, I think it changed throughout time um, as well there. But um, just in general, that, that's what was my motivation. Okay. So, um, so overall, for both of you, it was a good experience. I mean, Felicity, you said that, you know, after you graduate school, you definitely want to go back to Africa. So obviously Africa yeah. was something that really got into you. Now, let me shift the conversation a little bit. And, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, either one of you, but I do want to raise some of the more sensitive issues around volunteering in Africa, in part because mm-hmm. the whole idea of foreigners going to Africa is very much part of the, the caricature, the, the archetype stereotype of the kind of starving, suffering African that foreigners have to go to help out. Um, and, and, you know, I'll share with my own experience. You know, I lived in the Congo for quite some time. Um, I've lived in Asia. I've been in China for, for over 10 years. And um, one of the things that I've noticed by talking with both Peace Corps people in particular um, is they come to these countries without with very little knowledge of the country. They oftentimes, most of the cases, don't speak the language, don't know the culture. As you, you know, Alex pointed out, you were allowed to kind of pick Fiji or Namibia. I mean, those are really big differences. Um, you know, and I, I, Felicity, you and I were mentioning earlier, I mean, if, if I came to China and didn't speak Chinese, didn't know anything about <laughs> Chinese culture, and showed up and said, I'm here to help you, help you become, you know, more like us in some senses. Um, I think it wouldn't be too well received in China. And so I guess, you know, my point is, how much can you do in a place as complicated um, as any culture is, like any foreign culture, and you, what is your actual contribution? And I make the point here because both of you made one something very interesting. You said it benefited you personally. And here's my, my thesis that I'd like you to try and, and, and rebut. Um, I contend that these experiences are more for the individuals who do them than they are actually for the contributions on the people on the ground. Um, and that your contributions as volunteers are quite minimal rather than what it does for you personally. So, Alex, let, you know, I'll, I'll turn it over to you because I can hear you chomping at the, at the bit for that one. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it depends on what you're doing there, Eric. I really do. 
Um, if you're a teacher, you may not um, initially see the fruits of your labor. You know, I taught kids that were in eighth, ninth, tenth grade. That was 11 years ago. They're all in school. They're all in college now. If they if they got to the college level, hopefully they did. Hopefully I did enough a good enough job. Um, but you know, if you're if you're over there as a civil engineer or someone trying to fix water problems, you may able, you may be able to go back years later and see the fruits of your labor, as I had said. You know, building bridges, for example. Um, you know, uh, sanitation reasons. So I think it it is dependent upon uh, that. That would be my rebuttal in terms of. Of your state. You know, you know, I was in Kisangani, which is in uh, southeastern Congo, and we went out to dinner with uh, a man who had uh, he was an he was a nonprofit uh, uh, director, a Congolese nonprofit director, and he said for the first two to three years, and he was absolutely serious. He genuinely thought that the Peace Corps was a program where America sent its special children, um, <laughs> and he said that they were so incredibly inept. And, and what it was is that – and here's what it was. It was the arrogance of the Western system is that they would mm-hmm. rip out you know, Excel spreadsheets and talk about re, you know, restarting his you know, businesses. And it, and it was just completely from – as if they came from Mars. And the point yeah. is that he would and, – and this is where I come in the fault of the, the reason why it's structurally not sound, the Peace Corps – is because the incentive for someone like him is he gets paid to have you know Peace Corps guys there whether they do anything or not. Um, and nope. and other nonprofit groups actually force the the host organization to pay so that there's some skin in the game from the organization. And so my point is not to simply you know aimlessly criticize the the Peace Corps, but it was this idea that you know you as a teacher is one thing, but the Peace Corps does so many different things. And that in so many instances, it was these people who just were not trained in these very complicated environments and cultural situations that they were put in. Yeah, I think you're right, Eric, especially in terms of the Peace Corps. We, it, it was like, I'll be honest with you, 200 people came over in our group. It was like a cattle herd. Um, we had a day of training in D.C. Um, we got in country in Namibia, and we stayed in a small little, um, little area called Okahanya outside the capital city of Windhoek. Um, and really, you know, we weren't trained the best way we could have been. And halfway through that training, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's just going to be me versus Africa. I'm going to have to adapt. I'm going to have to figure out what I need to do to get by um, and try to make friends. You know, the best thing you can do in the Peace Corps is smile, really. I mean, people, you know, if you're in a safe area, and, and, and the 90, 99% of the people in Africa are great people. They're, they're happy. They're family-oriented. They'll like you if you like them. Um, and I think that's really how I, I got by where I was, um, outside the fact that they had respect for me based upon the fact that I was a teacher. There, there is that as well, that status. But you're right. Uh, by and large, you know, I thought the training could have been a lot better. Um, we had some, you know, language training which helped. But in reality, I got lucky just because people in Namibia speak English, just because it was a former South African um, colony. Or it was, you know, they, they ran it for a few years. So you're right on a lot of levels there. Sure. Now, uh, Felicity, I want to ask you a question that was posed on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. I know, of course, you're in Shanghai, so <laughs> Facebook is a little bit uh, off limits for you. But, uh, I found locked in. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing if you could actually see it. Erwin um, Chen, who's one of our more popular commentators and, and posters on Facebook, he asks, uh, did the Chinese government or any Chinese enterprise give you any support uh, during your time as a volunteer there, or do you know if uh, the Chinese government does support similar volunteer programs like the one you went on? 
Well, I didn't get any support, but I know that if you work in Africa, you can get some financial support by the government. Irwin has a second question that he asked on Facebook. He said, what can Chinese learn from foreign NGO projects in Africa? And this was interesting from your time because you were participating in an ASEC program, uh, and you had probably a chance to see some other uh, nonprofits operating in Ghana. What was your impression of what you think Chinese can learn from uh, from other foreign NGOs that have been there maybe for a longer time? So for the individual, I think the students go there um, six weeks. The things they can do are really limited. The most time, um, actually, to be honest, we don't have many things to do because when we go there, we use our free time. We don't have class, but also it's their summer holiday, so you can't go there teaching, right? So, And if you are not that positive, you, you are not a that eager to get work, you may just stay in the LC house and chatting and do some traveling and spend six weeks. So for the things you really do, I don't really think you can make any contribution to Africa, but for yourself, maybe you can like broaden your view, you can talk with other volunteers, and maybe you can find yourself some chance like you can go to the hospital, ask if they want, they want a foreign volunteer, or maybe you can teach in the summer school. So. Anyway, if you try, uh, you can learn a lot. But um, right now, I'd like to say that uh, the volunteer work is not that well organized. So, and uh, and that's really one of the big criticisms of some of the Chinese programs is that there isn't enough training, there isn't enough language support, and there isn't enough financial support for volunteers. But this goes yeah. to a. Let me ask you a bigger, a deeper question. I've been having an argument on our Facebook page. With, and we were incidentally talking about Ghana, and this, uh, this, this one user was saying that, you know, the Chinese reputation in Ghana is, is becoming worse and worse because of the allegations and the, the incidences of illegal gold mining. And I pointed out that I said, well, you know, in the larger context, yes, that is a real issue, but, you know, China's doing a lot of different things in Ghana, and you, you can't just focus only on the negatives. Uh, and then one of the things he said was, well, if China had more volunteers in, in places like Ghana, that would help offset the bad reputation that some that is developing in the country. And I made the argument that there isn't a deep tradition of volunteer work in a Confucian society like, like China, where that is people don't volunteer their time at a charity, much like we have in the Christian societies in the West. Um, do you, Felicity, you know, where do you come down on that debate? Because he came back to me with quotes from Confucius, which actually defended volunteerism. I've lived in China for 10 years, I've been studying it for 30 years, and I've never known the Chinese to be people who volunteer outside of their own <laughs> tribe and clan and their own immediate community for the sake of the betterment of society. In fact, in the past couple of years in China, if anything, we've had this, you know, they've taught it the moral crisis, the Dao De Wei Ji, this idea that, you know, people are not moral enough. People are letting babies get killed on the road and being shown on Weibo and, you know, and things, these awful things that we've seen in the past couple of years. So... My point is this question of is there a tradition of volunteerism in China that might actually support uh, more young people to go to places like Africa? Uh, I hate to say this, but I don't think uh, 
young people go there because of some tradition. But actually, we don't. It's not that popular. I mean, people here we do volunteering in our community or something. But yes, there is a trend that young people go out to volunteer. It's become like more and more a new culture. Okay, a new trend for young people to go outside. And besides, it's not that scary in China. Okay, people, babies get killed. No, no, not at all. Okay, so we don't want to give China a bad reputation, Alex. I'm going to give the last uh, the last word to you on this one. You know, obviously, uh, the you know in the in the U.S. and in uh, Europe, there there still is a big demand for people to do exactly what you did to seek adventure, to seek to improve themselves, to learn new cultures, new languages, and whatnot. But the issue in Africa is, you know, a lot of people go over with this idealism to save Africa. I'm going to save、uh-huh. these poor, starving children, and you know, we have that. I did a Google search today for Peace Corps Africa, and if you do the image search, almost every picture that comes up is a, a happy, smiling white man holding a black baby.、Yeah. Wow! <laughs> and I mean, and just do the Google search yourself, and you'll see the narrative kind of right there in front of you. The thing is, though, is that China, in many ways, is proving that that narrative is kind of outdated. You know, China is not going in to save Africa. China is going in to、uh, to invest in Africa. Some would say to exploit it. Some would say to to help develop it, build infrastructure, but not to save it in that kind of in Laura, you know, the Nightingale, that Lawrence Nightingale type of attitude. And that way, we've looked at Africa as Westerners for fifty years and since the post-colonial period. Um, do you think that volunteerism is changing now in this in, in this new era,、uh, in light of the fact that African economies are developing, they're fast becoming middle income、oh. countries, and that maybe China is changing the parameters of what needs to be done in a place like、uh, in certain countries within Africa? I think I think I think you're right. I mean, I, I, and and for, and for the most part, it makes me wonder. If you know if the Africans themselves are going to judge us differently as Americans, going to say, well, you're not bringing as much to the table as the Chinese are. So that's that's one point there. I think there's another point that I'd like to make. You know, halfway through my volunteership, I thought to myself, should I even be here? I mean, wh- why am I here when a native indigenous Namibian could be doing the same thing, be- being paid for it? You know, I was volunteering, and I-, I suppose that was a handshake between the United States and specifically Namibia, but. All of Southern Africa, for the most part,、um, the Peace Corps is involved with.、Um, but yeah, it, it makes you wonder. You're right. Obviously, like you said, you know the infrastructure aspect is very important. You know, depending upon how you look at colonialism, to be honest with you,、um, you know a lot of those countries didn't have roads beforehand. They didn't have the railroads cut up, et cetera, et cetera. So you saw, you know, you could see the effects of it, you know, being negative and positive. So I guess that. You know, it sort of touches on your point as well. Fascinating. Well, if you want to understand a little bit more about what Felicity did in Ghana,、uh, our、uh, we have a, a really insightful interview on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com,、uh, and there's a Q and A with Felicity. Felicity, thank you so much for joining us. We know you are right in the middle of exams as a second year student at Fudan University in Shanghai, and we just really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your experiences with us. You're welcome. <laughs> Great. Well, best of luck, and we hope to hear from you.、Uh, talk to you again after you graduate, maybe, and when you are on your way to Africa to work. Yeah.、And、we wish you the best yeah, of luck.、Sure. Okay. We're thrilled to get back on the line now. Finally, we've resolved our technical issues. Kobus from、uh, from Cape Town, South Africa, again at the Center for Chinese Studies.、Uh, good afternoon, Kobus. 
Good afternoon. Well, you you missed a fascinating discussion on uh, on volunteering, which I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be able to catch you up on later. But let's now move on to our our second two issues of of the, of the show. First, we're going to talk about uh, Namibia and China. Namibia. It's not a country that we hear too much about, in part because Namibia does not stand. And and, and Alex, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, but it does not stand very tall in the natural resources category vis-a-vis China and their interests that they have in say places like Angola in Sudan and Algeria. Uh, so it doesn't really pop up that much on, uh, in the news, but it's a fascinating uh, place in terms of the growth of the Chinese community. And then there's really, a, you know, a, a very rare instance where a country, particularly a country without a lot of leverage like Namibia, is pushing back on China. And we'll talk about an Exim Bank uh, squabble that's going on there. So first, uh, Alex, let's talk a little bit about the Chinese presence in, in Namibia. In the time that you were there, did you notice in particular the the role of Chinese merchants and small businesses? Definitely. Definitely in the capital city of Windhoek, uh, especially. Um, there, there were many. I mean, there were restaurants. There, there were individuals that ran a part of the casino in, in the capital city, um, as well as construction companies. I think that was the largest um, presence. Um, the last time I checked, there were 40,000 to 50,000 migrant workers from China in Namibia. Um, it makes you wonder if some of those shopkeepers are the families of those individuals or, or, or what. I, I would think so, um, in my opinion. To remember, in a country of 2.5 million, um, you know, someone from China is going to stick up pretty, pretty well, um, you know, in those areas. So. You, you know, Cobus, you know, we're talking about the shop owners. One of the, the earliest flashpoints politically uh, anywhere in Africa uh, when it came up to this very, very sensitive issue of Chinese merchants, came up in Namibia over the issue of hair salons. Now, hair salons are, are a very important business in part for, for local, particularly women, uh, not only in Namibia but other big cities as well. I mean, if you think about the fact that uh, women who have very little education, very little literacy, uh, there's a, a, a rather narrow range of businesses that they can open up uh, to sustain themselves. And hair salons was always one part of it. Well, the Chinese started coming into Namibian cities and, and opening up hair salons and doing what the Chinese do all over the continent, in fact, all over the world, is they underprice the local competition. Uh, they also open themselves for seven days a week, longer hours, and they work extremely hard. Um, this has caused a lot of tension. And Namibia, the government there, uh, was one of the first on the continent to, in- to enact legislation that actually banned Chinese merchants from opening uh, hair salons in certain parts of the cities. They were zoning laws put on the Chinese. And, you know, this is interesting to me, Kobus, in part because we've now seen in Malawi, uh, we've seen calls in South Africa for similar measures. So in some ways, Namibia really was a test case and a pilot case for this type of legislation. The the problem for me here is that there seems to be this kind of assumption from the from the Nigerian uh, from the, the Namibian government that there is no way to move Namibians up the ladder. You know, kind of that, that Namibians are just going to be stuck. You know, kind of other, at that level, and for that reason, they have to be protective in that kind of way. I don't know. You know, obviously, and part of that is probably real, realism, but part of it, it also seems kind of a little bit depressing, don't you think? Well, it is depressing, but Alex, I mean, a country of 2.5 million people, as you said, um, really does stand quite vulnerable out there in the world. And and more importantly, when you look at the constituencies that these politicians have to respond to, taking action against Chinese merchants 
seems like a no-brainer because there's no blowback going to come from the Chinese community to this. You're only going to win because the locals are going to respect you for this. That's exactly right, and, that, and that, you know, that reasoning is what holds true. It makes me wonder, though, you know, when um, some, of these, some, some of these Chinese migrant guys have kids and they're second-generation um, um, Namibians, are they going to be allowed to do that? And are they going to withhold the ability to do that based upon their ethnicity? That's kind of a funny a funny thing. I wonder where that's going to go in the future. Well, you brought up a point that I've raised a couple different times, which is that there is a permanent demographic shift and a racial shift that is happening in Africa with the presence of now over a million Chinese that live across the continent. So the second generation, and then what about mixed children as well? I mean, we're not even talking about pure, you know, they see both Chinese parents, but you're going to have more and more mixed race Chinese children. So you're going to have an ethnic diversity that, for the most part, uh, some parts of Africa, certainly East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, have had a long experience with, with Asia on that front. Uh, but places like Namibia have not. Nigeria is another one that hasn't. Uh, you know, Sudan, you can list the countries that are new to you know, Asian racial diversity. So that's really going to be uh, one of the key questions. When you, in your experience, you know, in your thoughts, and you've been very active on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, you know, talking about the role of the Chinese, and you talked about the labor that was there. Was your perception that, you know, Namibians were welcoming the Chinese, particularly the infrastructure projects that they were bringing, or did we see the tension that so, that clouds so much of the relationship on the ground? Um, culturally, I saw some tension. I definitely did. Um, I think for the most part, though, by and large, they, were, they, they invited them with open arms in, in the fact that they were creating jobs. Um, so, and that was the bottom line there. Um, there aren't a lot of jobs in Namibia um, for your average man. You, you just had mentioned hair salons. That's, that's one aspect of, 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 of where people work. But, you know, by and large, they, 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 they invited them with open arms. That, that, that's for sure. And on the labor crews that you saw who were building the roads, yeah. and, and these are the larger infrastructure projects, was it local labor yep. or was it Chinese labor? It was local labor with Chinese management. Yeah, and that seems to be very typical because, of course, one of the other flashpoint issues uh, across Africa and across the continent is the use of Chinese imported labor. Uh, but more and more we're seeing uh, Chinese management with local labor, and that would seem to be the case as well. Okay, well, let's move on to our third topic, and I'm not sure if we if, if Cobus is with us. Cobus, are you are you with yes, us? Yes, oh, you yes. are with us. Okay, so I apologize again. We're having a weak uh, connection over Skype the, the, today with, uh, with, with Cape Town. Namibia is also one of the, the points on the map that even though it's a small country, it doesn't have piles of gold and piles of uranium and oil, or maybe it has a little uranium, actually, but not piles of... Uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. They actually, they actually have a ton of uranium. We recently found a, a massive uh, deposit of uranium that's probably going to launch Namibia into being the third largest uranium producer in the world. Um, 90% of this new deposit is, is owned by a Chinese company, um, and they are now moving in to actually explore that and to Start probably um, start mining it in 2015, um, and this talk that um, that this is a, a form of control, like vertical integration, controlling um, you know uranium resources because the Chinese are massively moving into nuclear power. Apparently, there are 29 um, nuclear plants that are being uh, being built as we speak in China at the moment, and apparently there's also plans for in total 100. Um, so you know, kind of Namibia seems to be really positioning itself basically as a Saudi Arabia of uranium. Wow. Okay. So I definitely stand corrected from earlier in the show when I when I 
incorrectly stated that Namibia did not have uh, some key strategic natural resources compared to its other to its neighbors. Uh, you know, and then you know from your time there, you know, Alex, when you were there, you, obviously the Chinese were, were big players, and uranium is now clearly on their radar. Did you see the presence of other foreign countries and other foreign powers, or are the Chinese operating there basically alone? I think they're basically uh, basically operating there alone. You would see some of that, but you know. I was involved with a project that was set up through uh, UNESCO where we were going out and, um, and blasting pegmatite rocks out, outside the town I lived in um, after my Peace Corps experience, and we were mining uh, tantalum oxide, uh, which is commonly known as tantalite, which is used for, um, you know, it has, it's chemically inert, um, has a high, high melting point, and uh, it's used for uh, satellite casings and missile casings for weaponry. So, you know, you saw people come to the country looking to buy that, but by and large, um, you know, the, the mining operations were controlled either by South African companies, Namibian companies, or Chinese companies. Okay. Well, you know, Namibia in many ways has been, again, we talked earlier, a, a groundbreaking place for Sino-African relations, in part because they were the, one of the first countries to take actions against Chinese merchants. Now we're seeing, actually, the Namibian government really pushing back on a pair of Chinese loans that were for road development, which, again, we don't see much of this in terms of pushing back on the Chinese because they said the borrowing costs are too high. Kobus, this is an issue that we talked about several months ago on the show that even though the Chinese are investing billions and billions and loaning billions of billions of dollars to to African states, those are in fact loans. Low interest they may be, but they're still loans that need to be paid back. Tell us a little bit more about this Namibia uh, pushback on the Exim Bank's push to, to for infrastructure development. So this is a $126 million loan for two roads um, that, that were um, awarded to Chinese companies as, as the normal way. You know, kind of, if you get a loan from the Chinese Exim Bank, then the, the contractors have to be Chinese. So they were awarded to the two Chinese um, companies, and one of the problems is that it wasn't an open tender process. Um, and there was apparently some pressure from the, from the presidency to move ahead with the loan because they needed to hit... Uh, you know, kind of road building targets and timetables. Um, so now the Namibian government is saying that they feel that the loan is too big or that the, the cost per kilometer of road is too high. Um, but their main problem is that um, most of the raw materials and most of the machinery needs to be sourced in China. Um, and this is also this is a, a standard part of an Exim loan agreement. Um, so you know, if you get a if you get a, a loan from the Chinese Exim Bank, then you need to get you know you need to import the machinery and so on from China, or at least more than 50% of it. And the Namibian government is now pushing back against that because they say they want, you know, they want a kind of um, upstream kind of development in their own economy. So they're basically pushing against the very basis of Exim Bank loans, because that's one of the very bases of, of the way that the ways that China le- loans money. Well, and it's worth pointing out that China, of course, is not alone in doing this. USAID and in the Europeans tie to their loans that if you you know, get a grant to purchase wheat, it must be, lo and behold, if it comes from USAID, you know, Nebraska wheat, and it's a way to provide jobs for, for people back home. So, Alex, you know, I know yeah. that these kinds of stories generate outrage when they hit the social networks and people going to go, look, the Chinese are exploiting Africa. You know, they're only there to kind of, you know, loan money so that they can then push their products and push their, which is all true. Let's, let's kind of put it up there. But that's yeah. the aid business. I mean, that's exactly what the Americans have been doing for 50 years. 
No, it, 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 exactly. And I saw that I saw that uh, positioned in the media as well. You know, I ran to plenty of NGOs and governmental organizations, um, specifically USAID, that, that that were doing that. And and they believe the same. They believe the same thing. If you talk to somebody that wanted to speak the truth about they were about what they were doing, you know, you just hit it on the head. So I mean, I, I agree with that. You know, in Namibia, not so much. I mean, you know, by and large, very few people are starving in Namibia. You know, USAID. More, more, you know, active in, in Sudan, et cetera, these kinds of places. But yeah, Eric, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, I, w- I used to work at uh, RFI, Radio France International in Paris, and they have a, a program there where they, the, the French government gives uh, money to, you know, to bloggers and to, uh, you know, radio journalists throughout Africa. And I met, I was sitting with a, um, with a guy who, who founded Congo Blog, and he, uh, he received, I think it was a 200,000 euro uh, grant from the French government to start Congo Blog, which was this network of bloggers. And, and it was, and, and, he, and I said, well, what are you doing here in Paris looking for work? I mean, 200,000 euros should take you for the next 10 years in a place like Congo. And, uh, and he said that part of the requirement was that 75% of that grant had to be spent on French companies uh, to provide support for the grant. So he only got to spend 25% on local uh, businesses and local money inside Congo, and the other 75% was tied to French businesses that had to be supported with that. And I guess my point with this is that this is the corruption of the aid business more than anything particular to China, you know, and so uh, that, that's my, my take. Kobus, final words from you. What's your, your perspective on this? Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the actual details of this loan um, and the deal. You, you know, because obviously, you know, if, if you look, for example, um, this the the road deal is now stalled, and and it's they're probably going to renegotiate it. Um, you know, from beginning early this year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens with it and whether the the Namibian government can make any kind of progress with this kind of situation. Because obviously, if they do make any progress, it'll be a big change. Um, but if you look at the the way that, for example, the a big uranium mine project is running, um, even though it's done by Chinese companies um, with also a lot of Chinese government-related funding, um, some of the, the contracting, um, subcontracting jobs are actually given to South African companies. So you can see in certain, in certain cases, it's just sort of in terms of efficiency and in terms of market. Um, I recently read a very interesting article by um, a scholar called Lucy Corkin, who's, who's a big um, expert on China-Africa economics. And she made the point that there's a lot of ideological kind of back and forth within the Exxon Bank. There's a lot of um, fighting for for uh, influence from the the Ministry of um, of Commerce and then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs tend to see these loans as a way to to build diplomatic relations, while the Ministry of Commerce tend to see it as entryways for Chinese business into into the foreign markets. So you see, there's a there's a kind of a real kind of like split of opinion within the Chinese government about what these loans are supposed to do, and I think the the it's, it's very worthwhile to keep looking at this Namibian case because it seems to be really at that at that hinge, you know, on um, like you know, whichever way it's it's decided, whichever way it's, it's negotiated, it's going to be very revealing. You know, Alex, that uh, it's interesting how Kobus kind of said there's a, a split between Commerce and Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. That you know, that both are vying for influence over this aid money, and frankly. 
Um, you know, you close your eyes, and that sounds a lot like what Beltway politics in Washington look like. That the that the the the, the, the Commerce Department and the and the State Department probably have this similar type of tension over what this aid money is supposed to be for. Is it a jobs program for domestic American constituents, or is it a foreign policy program to help kind of improve the image of America overseas? Yeah, no, yeah, you're, you're exactly right there. Um, uh, I, I can't comment too much on that. I, I don't know the, the gist of that, but but yeah, Carlos makes a very good point. There. Yeah, I mean, so well, it's interesting to take a look at Namibia because Namibia, you know, seems to be a place where some key trends spark. Uh, again, merchants. Now we're seeing pushback on loans. You know, Cobus. My final thought, you know, after hearing everything you've been saying, is you know one of the the themes of our podcast is that we've talked about how African governments have to become stronger in standing up to the Chinese, so that they do not become tributary states to the to China. That is, in a tributary state relationship, the the size imbalance between the two is played upon by the larger power, in this case China. And so, by China loaning huge amounts of money and then putting the, the, the smaller state in a position of weakness, it allows it to have its way. And so, you know, going back to the BBC Africa debate in, in, in Lusaka that we commented on, one of the things we said is that African states and African leaders have to start standing up. And this seems to be an example of them pushing back. Am I overreading this or is that your reading of it as well? No, that is that is I, how I interpret it as well, and I think it'll be very interesting to see how it turns out. On the other hand, I think to agree with Alex as well is that um, you know, as more Chinese, there is more complicated Chinese engagement with these countries, and more Chinese people move to Africa. African governments are going to have to try and find a way to start thinking about their own citizens in a different way. Um, you know, kind of you find an, a, a very, for me, in my mind, a very kind of anti-cosmopolitan, anti-liberal kind of Africa for the Africans way of thinking in lots of countries where the presence of second generation immigrants or mixed race people are just simply ignored. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the challenge for a country like Namibia in the future is to try and look at who Namibians actually are. Um, you know, and, and to try and, and get a more sophisticated view of, of what constitutes a Namibian. Um, and that there is something, that there will be something like a Chinese Namibian, which at the moment the government seem to have done, have kind of given no thought to. Um, and I think that, that well, they'll have to think about that. You know, it's, it's a very big development in the whole of Africa in the future. Alex, uh, you know, final thoughts from you to respond to that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think the thought process is what can we get now? They're not thinking about the future, Cobus, and I think they need to. Um, like I said, second-generation uh, Chinese individuals, what are they going to be entitled to? And like you said, mixed-race people, what are they going to be entitled to? How are they going to be classified? I mean, I think that a lot of these countries in Southern Africa do like to classify people under certain, uh, certain uh, you, know, you know, classifications. And it does make me wonder. Um, I don't think they have that figured out. I think they may in the future, but I think that also may bring some strife and turmoil um, internally. So that, that's going to be interesting to see. Well, that's our perspective uh, for this week. We'd love to hear what you think, and we have lots of different forums for people to comment. We have this amazing uh, discussion that's going on that Alex is one of our most active members of our Facebook community that is now 34,000 strong. Most of those folks coming from Africa, uh, almost every, you know, about 60% uh, are young people, 18 to 24. You know, I suspect, Alex, that you've kind of moved out of that 18 to 24 range. 
I definitely have. I'm 40 now. <laughs> but so. young, young at heart, like the rest of us. Uh, but of course, it's a community <laughs> open to everybody. Yeah. Uh, but really, what the, the, the community is so strong for is is a really honest, open discussion and debate. You, you'll you'll see that not everybody agrees with one another. But we really invite you to come and to join on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/China Africa Project. We also have a new announcement to make. One that I'm very very excited about. Um, we are on Android, so you can go into the Google Play Marketplace, download. Uh, the China Africa Project app. You can listen to our podcast, follow our Twitter feed, follow our Facebook community, and all of the new wonderful blog posts that we're generating out of China right now uh, with Tendai Musakwa, who is our newest member of the China Africa Project. He is translating Chinese social media about the Chinese in Africa into English and posting them onto our, our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. That is just so freaking cool. I don't even know what to say about it. So, uh, Alex, are you an, an iOS or an Android user? I'm an Android user. Good. I'm definitely going to download that. Go I heard get... you mentioning it previously, and I got excited about it, but I couldn't find that. Is, is it out there? Um, it's out there now, and, and we have a, we have a grand total of 15 downloads so far. So, uh, so I hope that to see you as the 16th download, and uh, I'll be checking the stats tonight. Um, but if uh, are you, uh, and in addition to people following you on our Facebook page and uh, and seeing the discussions that you participate on, are you on Twitter or you participate in social networks anytime where people can follow you? Um, not, not right now. You know, if you guys want to get in touch with me, email is the best. It's Alexander underscore L A U at hotmail dot com. Wonderful, That's Alexander and also, underscore. And you can follow uh, Alexander also on our Facebook page at facebook dot com slash China Africa Project. Kovis, you are uh, in fact on Twitter. What's the best way that people can follow you there? I am at Stadenesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E, and I also hop onto our Facebook page almost daily. Wonderful, and you can follow me at E O Lander E O L A N D E R. I'm tweeting almost every day on China Africa stories. Uh, we are going to have our Apple iOS. Uh, app out uh, in the next uh, week or two. It's been submitted to the uh, Apple Store for review. So as soon as that's out, uh, our Apple fans uh, will be able to kind of, again, follow our tweets, our Facebook posts, listen to the podcast, and of course, all of our blog posts that we're generating now from China as well about China in Africa. We're also on SoundCloud and Stitcher and all the major uh, iTunes networks and, and the like, so you can follow us and find us anywhere you need. We do love, we would love if you can drop us a comment or give us a rating on iTunes is that definitely helps us move up in the Apple ecosystem so that more people can uh, see the show and, or listen to the show and, and see the uh, and be exposed to it. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week and next Sunday for another edition of the show. Until then, we'll see you on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>